gives us, brings us God's word. Good morning. It's uh, it's it's really hard for me to describe the uh, the honor I feel at being able to be with you around such a significant occasion as your your 10th anniversary. Um, Folks that know me know of the deep affection that I have for Paul and Peg and what it means to me to have them as as friends and Kim as friends. And and, and so now I get to be here this morning and see some of the fruit of your labors together and and your labors, my friend, and and to, to, to recognize God's blessing to you, God's faithfulness to you as a local church, which you will commemorate next week in your, your 10-year celebration. So I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be a, a small part of it. And I'm grateful to you uh, for a lot of different reasons. I know we haven't met before, a lot of us, but uh, you need to know I have a lot of gratitude for this local church because of, one, of the way you release your senior pastor to be on the Sovereign Grace Board and to serve on the Polity Committee on the Sovereign Grace Board. And I know it won't surprise you to discover that the very day this guy stepped onto the board, uh, he began to make a contribution to the board and and to Sovereign Grace. And I've had an opportunity to just kind of sit on the sidelines and watch that and thank God for that. You know what I love about that? The fact that when Paul serves on the board, even though he's He's serving outside of the local church. There's no place he wants to be at more than with his local church and that his heart is here and he loves you. But you're releasing him in, in a very key time and it, it would not be possible were it not for the fact that this local church understands the idea of partnership, that you're, you're part of a family of churches and, and you're making a great investment in that family churches in a key moment of our history. And so part of the reason I wanted to come this morning is not only to hoop and holler about your 10-year anniversary next week, but just to look you in the eye and say, say thanks. Thanks for releasing this man to serve us so effectively in this season. Thank you. (laughs) Romans chapter 4. like to begin reading in verse 18. As, as Paul said, the title of this morning's message is Faith for Barren Times, and uh, as you can tell from the title, it is a message on faith, and I want to say right up front that uh, I didn't pitch this message to Paul earlier because I believe I embody faith. It's because I desire to grow in faith. And uh, I've been studying faith, and uh, it, this has been, it's been such a help to me personally. And uh, I do have a sense that God wants it to be a help to you personally this morning as well. So chapter 4, verse 18. In hope, he, that's talking about Abraham, by the way, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Let's pray. Lord, we have a a sense of anticipation that you have gathered us together this morning to meet us in a profound way. Lord, we thank you that that's already begun in our experience of worship, in our experience of fellowship, even in the giving of our finances as worship unto you. But Lord, now we we sit before your word and we, we need you. We need something from you. And we pray that you would feed us this morning through this passage. I pray, Lord, you would help me to serve these good people in a way that transforms us all, me included. And I pray this in Jesus' name. He had already lived 75 years. That's three quarters of a century. His name Abram literally meant father of many, a rather stabbing irony for a man with no kids. But he was wealthy, healthy, happy, and surrounded by extended family when God interrupted his rather settled existence with these incomprehensible words with this incomprehensible command. He said, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you and I will make a great nation of you. (laughs) Imagine that, a great nation springing from an old man with no kids. How does that work? But scripture records that Abram obeyed. He uprooted his family, which at that point only included his nephew and and servants and livestock and possessions. And he went forth, as Hebrew chapter 11 records, not knowing where he was going. And as he journeyed, he waited. Every week, every month, he waited. Each year, he waited for the promise to be fulfilled. Several years later, God kind of drops by in a vision. Abram was in an anguished state. He was still childless. There was no heir. I imagine Abram just crying out before God, great nation. What's all this business about a great nation? All I have is a nephew. I'd settle for a great pet at this point. I've got no nation. How about a great county? Maybe a good township. Where's the nation? And so God took him outside and bid him to look toward the heavens and to number the stars. And then God spoke these eternal words to him, so shall your offspring be. And scripture records that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it would be extraordinary if the story ended there, but that's actually just the beginning of the story. 
Because all of that took place before what I like to think of as the long wait in Abram's life. Now, the first couple of years weren't so bad. But you know, after seven or eight years, the memories grow dull. Did that really happen? Did God really appear to me? Did he speak to me in the way that I thought he spoke to me? He spoke to me. After all, Sarai's still barren. Abram's just aging. At year 10, um, mistakes were made. Sarai had to know, is it him or is it me? So she pushes Hagar on Abram as his wife. Abram capitulates. Ishmael is conceived. Arab history begins. But Ishmael is not the promised one. Another 14 years pass. God returns. He reaffirms his promise. He changes his name from Abram, father of many, to Abraham, father of a multitude. Abraham is now 99 years old. Sarah, whose name has been changed to Sarah, has been through menopause. They have one child, and that one child is not the promised one. He's the son of a slave. When will the child come? How long will they wait? One year later. 25 years after the promise, Isaac is born. Now that's the story behind the words in Romans chapter 4. And if we were to look at the prior three chapters, we would see that Paul has exposed the desperate state of human beings apart from God, chapter 1. And from there, he kind of patiently and meticulously displays God's answer in the gospel, a righteousness that comes through faith alone. And so he's building an argument. He's building to his point. And it's here in chapter 4 that Paul introduces the strongest and most stunning piece of evidence for the position that he's setting forth. He takes Abraham, the father. He takes Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish lineage, and he offers him as exhibit A for saving faith. But here's the thing. While chapter 4 is certainly about the faith that saves, it's about the faith that justifies, in chapter 4 we are also instructed about the nature of, of faith itself. In other words, all of the ingredients of a daily God-pleasing faith are seen in Abraham's faith, which is why the writer of Hebrews uses Abraham's example to call believers to persevere through faith in God because the faith that justifies also portrays the faith that pleases God. The faith that justifies also portrays the faith that helps us to persevere in life. And so we must understand this faith that we might cry out to God for this faith that we might apply this faith. So I've got Abraham's faith broken down into three different parts, and I want to look at this together beginning in verse 18. Here's the first part. Number one, it's believing the promise. Believing the promise. Chapter 4, verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So, Abraham had been told something by God, that he would be a father, that he would have a son. And so we learn here that faith responds by investing trust in the word of God, in God's words, and standing 
on the promise as if it is a guaranteed future reality that we just have not experienced yet. Trusting in the words of God, even more than just having an experience that might include God. Because if you're anything like me, there's just a temptation when you read sections like this. There's such a temptation to say, yeah, I get it. You know, if, if God came to me in a vision and kind of chatted with me about my future, then I could believe as well. As if true faith rests upon supernatural experiences. But the problem with supernatural experiences is that, that memories fade. They faded for the Israelites as the Israelites are experiencing challenges under the Egyptian rule. And, and Moses comes, let my people go. He leads them to the Red Sea. They part the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. Red Sea comes back down upon the Egyptians. Within days, they're complaining. Memories fade. Memories of supernatural experiences fade. Faded for the Israelites. They faded for the kings. They faded for the prophets. They fade for you. And they fade for me as well. You know, I, I, last year, uh, Mark, the guy who leads our small group, kind of, it was right around our anniversary. Kim and I were celebrating last year, our 29th. We just celebrated our 30th in, in August. So um, we're sitting in our care group about a week before our anniversary, and Mark says, hey, Dave and Kim have an anniversary coming up. Why don't you share with us a memory of your wedding day? And it completely caught us both off guard. And so I looked up, and Kim looked up, and we kind of locked eyes. You know when you're married and you, you, know, you can't remember something, and so you lock eyes with your spouse, and you're kind of trying to prompt one another. You prompt each other's memory, and I'm getting nothing. I'm getting nothing. And I'm searching my mind back and forth. I'm getting no most significant day of my life apart from conversion. I'm getting nothing. Most monumental, life-defining experience apart from meeting Jesus Christ. I'm getting nothing. I'm frantically searching the database. I'm looking down at my hand. I have a ring on my finger. I know I'm married. But for some reason, there was a big drop-off between that day and me preaching to you here this morning. Memories fade. Even memories of big things fade. Here's my point. Abraham didn't stand on the vague memory of an experience. God spoke. He believed. And he drove a stake of confidence right there. Now, for us, the promises of God are contained and preserved in our Bible. Listen, if you're not working your Bible, it's impossible to grow in faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's just, let's just take a second and let's try to apply this point of believing the promise. Let, what does it look like in real life? In fact, let's start with the context of this section of scripture, justification by faith. Let's imagine for a second that you're here this morning and you're saying, Dave, you don't understand. I hear what you're preaching on, justification by faith. But I look at my past. I look at the mistakes I've made. I look at the sins I've sinned. And I, and I just think, how could God ever see me as anything but what I am? How could God ever see me as pure? How could God ever see me as righteous? You know, when I look in the mirror, I just feel polluted. And yet you're saying, and this passage is saying that God God sees me in a different way. 
Well, let, let's go to the word of God because in God's word, God announces to us a righteousness that is counted to us. We didn't read this earlier, but let's look at verse 22. That is why his faith, that's Abram, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Listen, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So if we confess in our heart Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart, he was raised from the dead, we will be saved. It is a promise from God that God helps us to believe in. Let, let's, let's change the scenario. Let's, let's say right now you are in an extended season of trial. Maybe you've lost your job, or your job's on the bubble, and you've taken some pay cuts. A season of unexpected expenses. And, and you know, you be, you've begun to feel that gnawing anxiety in the pit of your stomach. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night, and you're just, you're just ruminating over scenarios of your own demise. You just imagine yourself like a, a you know, impoverished, begging for money down in Boston on the corner and having a cup that people put coins in. You know, you're just imagining that everything is going to go wrong. It's fomenting your fears. And you're beginning to encounter real worry about whether you have any kind of future whatsoever. Well, faith in that situation doesn't say, God, appear to me in a vision, for I need you. No, faith says God has revealed himself in his word. So let me go to his word to hear his promise for my problem. And, you know, maybe you go to Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, we go to the word of God and we encounter an extraordinary promise of necessary provision for when we need it. And you know what? When you think about your past, that's always the way God's worked in your life. Doesn't he have a pretty good track record of coming through for you? I mean, yeah, it's at 11.59 at times. You know, the, the, it's just about to strike 12 and, and everything's about to collapse and God comes through. Because he wants to cast us upon himself. Maybe you're here as a teenager and, you know, you got the whole fifth command thing and, you know, honor your mother and father. And, and, uh, and yet, in your opinion, when you look at your mother and father, you feel like they're not honorable. Now, you may be completely wrong. You may be in teenage world. But nevertheless, you feel like when you look at your parents, they're not honorable. And yet, yet Ephesians calls us to honor our mother and father. The Old Testament calls us, but Ephesians calls, the, Ephesians calls this the first command with a promise that it may go well for you and that you live long in the land that God has given you. And so there's this sense where honor your mother and father. The word of God calls us to act in the present with honor because we believe in a certain kind of future. We believe in a future blessing. We believe that God will honor his word. See, what we're talking about here is a, is a life, is a kind of uh, 
calling that we all have where scripture speaks louder to us than our feelings. Because to be alive is to always have voices speaking to you. Our fears speak. Our circumstances speak. Our enemies speak. Our sufferings speak. Our fears speak. Well, faith trusts what God says about the future more than what those voices say in the present. Did you get that? Faith trusts what God says about the future more than what those voices say in the present. And so the question we have to grapple with this morning is, what voices matter most to us? What voices are loudest in our ear? Well, Abraham had to wrestle with that too. And his answer is in verse 21. He, was full, he became fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In other words, Abraham eventually, he didn't start here, but he eventually rested in this settled conviction in God's word. His heart was fully convinced. Why? Because God said it. It was God's word and God's word alone. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, there is always this naked element in faith. It does not ask for proofs. It does not seek them. In a sense, it does not need them. Faith is content with the bare word of God. This is what I want for myself. I want to be content with the bare word of God. Lord, help us all to be content there. Believing the promise. Second point, embracing the circumstances. Listen to these words in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's, of Sarah's womb. You know, what I love about this description is that it, it links faith to reality. In other words, there's, there's no denial of the problems here. There's no spin of the information. There's no dumping of the evidence. There's just an unvarnished assessment of how bad things really are. In fact, in the very beginning, verse 18, that in hope he believed against hope, that's just basically a way to say it was pretty hopeless. There's no attempt to avoid the raw truth because the raw truth might reinforce negative thoughts or stir unbelief. You know, there's a body of faith teaching that assumes that voicing the reality of the problem is actually empowering the problem, or voicing the reality of the problem is actually emboldening the enemy, and it makes Christians appear, oh, how can I say this delicately, like lunatics. It makes us appear like lunatics because we have struggles. We're, we live in a fallen world. We have fallen bodies. They're decaying. We get sick. And for us to live in denial of that is to deny the reality of the context in which God allows faith to work. And so we deny. We're sick. We're coughing. <coughs> no, I'm not sick. <coughs> it only appears as if I'm throwing up blood here. I already have all the healing I need. Well, listen, bro, if that's your healing, you better trade it in for another one because that one ain't working for you. Isn't this a refreshing passage? Isn't this a... Re 
Abraham is considering his circumstances. Read this carefully. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own. The guy is not only not fleeing from the reality, but he's taking stock of how bad things really are. He considers his own body. It's as good as dead. He's 100 years old. He considers the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So he's considering the circumstances. He's considering the reality. And when he comes back, he realizes, you know what? The results ain't pretty. Abraham says, I look in the mirror at my body, and it's as good as dead. Now, because he's a guy, he's saying, oh, it's a dashing kind of hip kind of dead. You know, the better than any other 100-year-old guy kind of dead. I look at Sarah, and she's 90. And she's, I love her, she's a wife, she's my wife, she's a babe to me, but she's barren. She's a barren beauty. See, this is what this section is meant to communicate. You look at Abraham, it's impossible. You look at Sarah, it's incomprehensible. Everywhere you look is dead. There's no seed, no hope, no way, no life. The circumstances, it's as if they're a jury and they've come back and they've declared, they've returned with this verdict. It's all impossible. There is no life. Do you see what this is getting at? Abraham believed when there was no life. Abraham believed that when he looked at the circumstances, everything was barren. Everything seemed hopeless. It seemed lifeless. He seemed impotent. There was nothing he could do to make any changes. I wonder if you have any areas where you are burdened by an absence of life. Where the circumstances reveal a kind of of barrenness. Maybe you've been praying for this person for years and you love them. And you want to see them meet Jesus Christ. But when you're honest, when you take stock of the situation and you think about where things really are, you realize there's no change, no interest, no life. Or you've been dogged by this sin since you were a teenager. And it just doesn't seem like you're growing whatsoever. And when you honestly examine where you really are, you realize there's no strength, no power, no change, no life. Or you've heard back. From the doctor. And you thought it was going to be a good report. And it's a bad report. And you're looking around. And it just seems hopeless. It seems lifeless. There's no strength. There's no hope. There's no life. Or you look at your child. You look at your teenager. And you think they have been given so much from God. And yet they seem to be bearing so little fruit for God. There is no zeal, no heart, no interest, no life. All around me is barrenness. Who can relate to that? God says, Abraham can relate to that. And not just for a short season either. When you walk with Christ for a while, you realize that trials, trials don't tend to be trials because they're short. They tend to be trials because they come to us in two and three year increments. But this wasn't even just your typical two- or three-year trial. This was 25 years. In fact, God intentionally waited until it seemed too late. Think about it. Think about it. The problem is not just barrenness, but age. 
It's not just the absence of life as if, as if Sarah is not pregnant once again, but you know because of her age, she could get pregnant any time. It's not just an absence of life. It's the utter inability to produce life. What's being communicated here about Abraham looking at his body, looking at Sarah's body, is they're too old. They're too old. He's too old to produce life. She's too old to produce life. His body is as good as dead. Her condition is barren. It's all there intentionally. It's all there intentionally. Remember verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. He, it was hopeless. It was lifeless. It seemed, it seemed without hope. God brought them to a place where it was evident to them and everyone else, this is way beyond man. This is way beyond man. And if there's any help, if there's any hope, if there's any forward progress, it's going to have to come from some kind of outside supernatural intervention. It has to come from God and God alone. Do you ever notice that there are times in our life where we confront things that are utterly beyond our ability to produce the leadership necessary for change? And that God will put us in situations specifically to disabuse us of the notion that we have the ability to bring about change in people's lives, in situations, that we really are far more dependent upon God than we think. And there are times where he will return us to situations simply to reacquaint us with the reality of that, simply to reacquaint us that it is by faith and faith alone. To reacquaint us with the reality of that's how this whole program started to begin with. I mean, isn't that how the whole thing starts? The relationship with Jesus Christ starts? Our salvation is not of us. It's God's work and God's work alone. You know, I, I remember before I was a believer being drawn, feeling this irresistible draw to Jesus. But this idea was a tripping point because I thought I had to bring my life um, a, a much more sanitized version of my life. I had to clean it up, and then I would have something to present to Jesus Christ. You know, I kind of related to conversion, like, like going through customs. Anybody here ever travel internationally, and you know, you're, you're standing, there's custom agents, and they're up there, and they're looking at all the papers, and you're standing in line, and, and you have your passport and visa. Do I have everything in order? And every, is everything punched and stamped the way it should be? Because I have to go up, and the custom agent is going to ask me for my papers, and everything has to be in order so the custom agent can stamp me, and I can get into the country. Well, we, we relate to God that way, not just coming up with our mess and coming up with our inability and, and our hopelessness and throwing ourselves upon God because we can't do anything to save ourselves, but we think we have to pull it all together and get, my, get everything stamped and everything in place. And let me just, let me come forward so that I'm at least in order if I'm not impressive, and then I, I can give it to God and he'll stamp me because of what he sees, not realizing that it doesn't, we never get our papers in order. In fact, in fact, the whole program, if, we, if we're going to continue the analogy, it would be like Jesus come along, bumps us out of line, says, you know what, hang over there for a second, and he goes up to the father, the custom agent. He presents his documents, and the father stamps those documents, and then we get in the country because Jesus said, okay, you're good, go ahead in. Do 
Maybe for you, maybe this is why you are still waiting for your promise to be fulfilled. Maybe God is at work removing you so that it's all of him. Do you get what I'm saying? God did not act for Abraham and Sarah. He did not act on his word until he alone was the answer. He did not act on his word until he alone would get the glory. But there was this remarkable transformation that took place in Abraham's life in the meantime, where Abraham went from being circumstance-centered to being promise-centered. There was this transformation. That's why it could be said of him. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith because he was embracing the circumstances and not denying them. Which then leads us to our third and last point, sustaining the trust. Sustaining the trust. So verse 20 talks a little bit more about how this transformation took place that I was just alluding to. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong. So he didn't start strong. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. You know what we have, we have to get? What we have to wrap our brain around regarding this story is that Abraham came to a place. Listen, this is very important. Abraham came to a place where it was the unchanging circumstances that ultimately altered his faith. It was the unchangeableness of the circumstances. That's where he met God. He met God in barren. Oh, my goodness. This is so different from me. See, for me, so often... Faith sparks when I see some kind of hopeful sign in the situation. And then I see the hopeful sign, and I kind of extrapolate from that, and I think, God, is at work. See the hopeful sign. Therefore, I'll have faith. That wasn't the way it was for Abraham. It was the barrenness of the situation where he met God. And I'm sure he passed through all the same experiences we do in our barren times. You know, you, you go through the denial of this. It can't be this bad. It, certainly, Lord, it can't be this bad. And then we kind of have anger. I'm, you know, Lord, I can't believe you're doing this to me. And, then, and we demand that God's going to change him. But eventually, God works, and the Spirit of God works, and we accept it. And then we begin to anticipate how God's going to work. And we give glory to God. See, it, sa- it says of Abraham, he was, f- no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. How? As he gave glory to God. Think about it. The circumstance didn't change at all. He's still in barren times. He looks at his body dead, looks at Sarah dead. He gave glory to God. You know, even as I say this, I'm convicted. Because I realize how often I don't give glory to God in barren times. How preoccupied I can be with the barrenness and not God. The barrenness gets big, God gets small. He gave glory to God. So the results of this were were that the circumstances didn't change, but Abraham's faith changed. 
And so his faith grew strong, which released his tongue, and his tongue glorified God. And then eventually, his life became characterized by a sustained trust. And that's the point I'm making, sustaining the trust. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it just seems to please God to fix a pain and a promise in our life at the same time? And to have that pain play out over a long period of time. I mean, that's how it was for for Abram. Let's, Let's remember, Abram meant father of many. That's what he was named as a child. I mean, as a kid, I'm sure that was a, a source of pride, a kind of proclamation of a prodigious future, which just is another way to say he thought he was going to have tons of kids, strapping boys and dainty girls, huge family. And so Abraham goes into his teen years. He, he takes a bride, and they start their life together, and the kids don't come. One month passes, six months pass, a year, two years, five years, seven years. Kids don't come. Multiple family reunions where they have to answer questions. Kids don't come. Facebook profile read, father of many, still no kids. Kids don't come. It was worse, I'm sure, when the caravans came through. See, Abram was wealthy. He was the owner of many wells for many miles, and it was customary back then for for travelers to pay a well-use fee, and then they would visit the owner, and inevitably these questions would follow. There was a kind of ceremony, a custom, that uh, when the traveler would come into the presence of the, the well owner, he would say, what is your name? This probably happened thousands of times to Abram. What is your name? I am Abram. I am Abram. Congratulations, Abram, father of many. Where are your sons and how many children have you? I have none. Thousands of times. I have none. I imagine there may be some here who can relate to the pain, to the disappointment to the monthly demoralizing morass from wanting and not having children, from having to repeatedly answer the question with this response, we have none. Eventually it became so bad for this couple that Sarai pushes him into the arms of another woman, perhaps even out of the bitterness of wanting to know Who's really at fault here? Let's see who lacks life here, Abraham. Is it you or is it me? Go into Hagar. We're going to find out. I have none. Sure, there was a promise, but it took 25 years. And towards the end, at year 24, all they had was Ishmael. God changes his name from father of many, Abram, to Abraham, father of a multitude. He's being upgraded, and all he has is a son of a slave and a promise. Listen, please don't imagine that this wasn't a source of shame for Abraham and Sarah. Please don't imagine that this didn't form the most difficult years of their life. Please don't imagine that they, perhaps just like you, 
weren't the object of rude comments from people that just don't understand their condition, that don't understand their situation, that try to help them in clumsy ways, that try to hold them accountable in foolish ways, and that cause them to repeatedly have to say out loud, we have none. There's no progress, only barrenness. Please don't imagine as well that this wasn't somehow ultimately essential to the work of God in Abraham's life. I mean, think about it. Somehow, in the dealings of God, in the work of God, this created something done in Abraham's heart, a work that was so deep that it created a confidence willing to sacrifice the child that he had waited 25 years to possess, trusting God that God would raise the child again, foreshadowing the coming of a Savior who would not, the hand of the Father would not be slain over the child. But the son would be crushed for our iniquity. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing in this season between the promise and the fulfillment? Are, are you patiently waiting for God? Or have you been conceiving an Ishmael? You know, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says Ishmael symbolizes the child of the flesh. In other words, that, that self-sufficient choice that displaces God from our life because we don't want to wait around for God. We've had it with waiting for God. We believe we know the will of God. And if God's not going to bring about his will, we'll bring it about ourselves. See, Ishmael's are conceived when impatience marries unbelief or when impatience joins my demand, what I want from my life, when I want it. I want it now. So we can't really afford it, and we don't really need it, but we want it. And so we slap down a credit card, and we buy it, and we've been paying for it ever since. It's Ishmael with interest. Or, or he's not a Christian. She's not a Christian, but she's just so close. So I'll marry him or I'll marry her. And fast forward, and I've been paying for that mistake ever since. It's Ishmael with irreconcilable differences. Or if I just tell this little lie, if I just fudge this report or shade this truth or confess half of it, then I can get what I want. I can get the promotion. I can get the forward progress. I can get my parents off my back. I can get out of trouble. I can keep my secret concealed. But we don't, we don't see how it deadens our soul and how it obscures the promises of God. It's Ishmael at any cost. And if we were honest with each other this morning, for some of us, our Ishmaels stare at us each and every day, a kind of daily reminder of the fruitlessness of our own effort. But listen, if that discourages you, I want you to think about this. Abraham is offered in Scripture as someone who got faith right, and Ishmael is embedded in his story. So Abraham is not offered to us in Scripture as someone who is perfect. He's offered to us in Scripture as someone who points forward to he who will come and be perfect, to he who will live the 
God, in conformity to God's law in all things at all times. And it's because Jesus lived that perfect life and he died that substitutionary death and he rose on the third day that he has the authority and the power to redeem us, which means he can reverse the effects of Ishmael in our life or transform us, which means, listen, it means that our fleshly choices, those places where we didn't trust God, our fleshly choices no longer need to define us. It means we don't need to spend years trying to atone for the mistakes we've made, trying to atone for the sins that we've committed because we can look to the atonement of another. Because as it says in, in verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So like Abraham... Sure, our Ishmaels may live on, but, but they're written into a bigger story that passes through the cross, a bigger story that redeems us despite our past and despite our sins and our mistakes and our failures, despite our Ishmaels. And Abraham trusted this. It's how he was able to, quote, grow strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And so in like manner, may God help us to see the Savior so clearly that his promises are more real than our circumstances so that we too can give glory to God right here, right now. Not because our circumstances have changed, but because our faith has. Let's pray.